Hi, it's Monday, August 5th, 2019, and this is Actors on Process. Today's guest is Paul Sparks. You know, after I sat down with Fred Weller, he was generous enough to reach out and put me in touch with his friend Paul, and I'm so glad he did. Paul's major film and television credits include The Greatest Showman, House of Cards, The Night Of, and Boardwalk Empire. On stage, he was most recently seen in Edward Albee's At Home at the Zoo, Buried Child, The Killer at Theatre for a New Audience, True West at Williamstown Theatre Festival, Hedda Gabler on Broadway with Mary Louise Parker, and he will soon be starring in the upcoming production of Waiting for Godot at Theatre for a New Audience with Michael Shannon in 2020. Before we get into today's episode, have you subscribed yet? I know, I keep bothering you to do so, but if you haven't done so, could you do it when you finish today's episode? I think you'll really enjoy it. Oh, and be sure to tell a friend too. Okay, okay. And now, Paul Sparks. started sounds good hi hi so paint us a picture we're in oklahoma it's high school who were you and were you in the school plays um yeah so i'm in oklahoma in marlow oklahoma which is a town of about five thousand people my father is the head high school football coach and the assistant principal my mother is an elementary school teacher at the same school. There's only one school. I was um, an athlete. I liked playing. I played football and baseball and basketball and um, did all things sporting. And my father had taken a speech class when he was in college. And he said it was the most sort of illuminating and scary and one of the most positive courses that he'd taken in school. And he said, you know what? You're going to take speech. At our, our particular high school had a speech teacher, and her name was Paula McConnell. And he said, you're going to take it, much to my chagrin. Um, I, was, I sort of am simultaneously uh, shy yet extroverted. Like, it, I have to walk through, like, a kind of a, a scary place before I can kind of enjoy where I'm at. And um, But I took this speech class, and uh, my teacher was very encouraging that I do the play. And I loved doing that kind of stuff, so I ended up doing plays. Um, I was a popular kid. You know, I was, like, kind of the—I was, like, the bully uh-huh. character, you know, that is written about. Without actually being a bully, I don't think I was, I wasn't actually mean. I was probably more just kind of um, off to the side. Like, I didn't really get that involved in it. I actually don't have, like, a huge memory of, like, all the things that I did. In co- you know, yeah, I, just, yeah. I was goody-goody, you know, good student, uh, went to church, you know, which was big in our town. Very, um, you know, I didn't go out. My parents were strict. Um, so I was just home. I was kind of a boring kid, Same. but, uh, I did hold the sort of, um, the, um, the mantle of being the kid that was both an athlete and also liked to be in the plays. And so I did, I did all the high school plays when Which I was there. We did, you know, it was a lot of wacky. It was, um, you know, musical, no, not music. What was it? There was one that was... Well, we did Pajama Game. Uh-huh. Who were you? Uh, I played... Uh, what's his name? The guy who runs the... Vernon the, Hines. Yeah. So did I. Hinesy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big Tempest one for Fugit, me. whatever that Yeah, Tempest Fugit. That's yeah. right. Um, I was in... Um, what's the one with uh, Dauntless, the Drab, and... Um, Once Upon a Mattress. Once Upon a Mattress. Did that one when I was Dauntless. Um, I was in... Oh, what's the one where the guy's in the wheelchair... 
and um, he's kind of pulling a fake over the whole household. It's sort of a, a closed door. Uh, they did it on Broadway recently, but I can't remember what it was. It's like it's a musical or mus- play. Mu- it's play. It's like Moose Merton. Uh, oh, I don't know. Anyway, there were a couple of those, mm. you know. But I don't. I don't remember what the other one was. But you know, you, I, you know, wacky stuff. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So you did musicals too. Yeah. This but inevitably I was, comes up all the time when you do this. Because like people who like do a lot of plays, I'm like, you did musicals too? And oh, like, yeah. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, no, I can tap dance. Seriously. Like for real. Like I, when I was in college, I went to college, um, there was a guy who was Oklahoma. Of course they were doing yeah. it. I was at Oklahoma State. And he was like, so you're going to have to tap dance. So we learned. And I learned. And I can still and do it. it. Yeah. And I, I think it's I, like riding a bike. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's one of those weird, lovely things that I'm really, like, some people can wiggle their ears, you know. Right, right, you're like, but I can tap. I can tap, yes. Um, (laughs) uh, No, I liked liked doing uh, musicals, but I was also really involved in the speech team, like, Mm. competitive speech, you know, doing monologue, and not debate, but we did, like, monologues, and and, um, I was very successful in college, like, won a lot of, like, medals, and so I thought, oh, yes. This is great. This is great. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so, like, was this around the time that you knew that, like, oh. No. No. When no. did that happen? This was all building a portfolio so that I could become the uh, chemical engineer that I had always dreamed of. Right. I read about this. Um, you know, it just never really seemed, um, it always seemed fictitious, the yeah. idea of, like, being an actor. I had no role model. I didn't know anybody that right. had ever done that. Um, so... No, I went to college. I went to Oklahoma State to study chemistry. Um, I had a my that same speech teacher sort of um, encouraged me. She said, "You know, there's a scholarship. It's a theater scholarship. You probably won't have to do anything, you know, other than audition. If you get it, it's kind of a lot of money. It was very cheap to go to school in, in state. state. You know, I mean, I think it was like four or five grand. You know, books, room, board, everything." everything. And so I kind of made money, you know, the first year or so I was right. there because I had a small academic scholarship and a small theater scholarship. But there was requirements, you know, that you fulfill. And so I was kind of doing it as like, oh, it's this fun sort of weird thing that I do on the side while I approach this other. But immediately, I mean, almost instantaneously with being in an actual um, environment that was uh, are built around theater and the people that are drawn to theater, I was instantly like, oh, this is, th- I, I couldn't get enough of yeah. being in that. Like, I loved all of it, building the sets and being a part of, you know, because back then you used to build them, do the show, yeah, and take it down, you know, it's like a whole thing. Whole and thing. I, I loved all that. I thought all that was, um, it just all made a lot of sense to me. And it took me a while and a little bit of encouragement from my father, actually, to say, oh, maybe I should try this as yeah. a career. Yeah. And that led you to NYU? Well, yeah. You know, what happened was is that I, the, after my first year, speaking of musicals, I did, um, I got cast in Kiss Me Kate in um, 1940s Radio Hour mm-hmm. in Stores, Connecticut at the Nutmeg Summer Theater. And the guy who taught me how to tap dance... Peter Westerhoff was his name. Um, he was directing there. And he said, listen, do you want to go do this in the summer with this other guy? And I thought, yeah, I'd never even been out of Oklahoma. Right, really. right. So we we drove all the way up there. Although I had to play a um, I saw intensified tap dance training right. for Kiss Me Kate. And then also... Were you Lucentio? No, no, no. I was nobody. I was chorus. I played Biff in the other one, who plays the trumpet, which I had played when I was in the fifth grade. So I had to learn to play the trumpet again mm-hmm. and like learn the whole score of the, which I did in my car, which is like an odd, I had months to sort of prepare. And, Just so you didn't want to disturb anybody. Right. And also to, you know, improve your amateur, mm. you just have to blow on the horn a lot. Yeah. So, because um, mine was so weak. Um, <laughs> I did increase my lip. Uh, so... We went up there and I met a bunch of people that were from New York and from around and they said, what are you doing? You know, stay, stay out here. Come to Boston or come to New York or wherever. Don't, don't, go don't go back and do that. And I had had such a sort of bacchanal, wonderful, you know, time mm-hmm. when I was there. 
that I was really kind of low when I got back and when I was in school in Oklahoma. And I just decided, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to move to New York. I'm just going to move there. Um, I remember sitting in the green room at the, at the college and there was a guy uh, whose name was Jerry Davis. He was the technical director. And there was another guy, I can't remember his name was, but he was the head of the department. And they were arguing about a set, like what a set ought to be made out of. And I mean, these 65-year-old men just like screaming at each other in the green room of this college. You know, we were all smoking, because you could all smoke back then. Mm -hmm. And they were, they, were, they were so passionate and incensed and screaming about, you know, what, whether to use wood or um, styrofoam. Mm -hmm. And... I remember thinking, that's their job. Like, yeah. That's what they do. They get paid to like have these kinds of... And I thought the absurdity of that, the absurdity of that as like a profession, suddenly that made a whole lot of sense to me. And I, you know, and, and I was going to be a really average chemist. Yes. So <laughs> I immediately just kind of turned all my eyes like... I'll just move to New York and just figure it out. So you moved without even getting into the school? No. Well, what happened was my father was like, whoa, easy now. Easy before you just, yeah. And he said, surely there must be a school up there or something that you could possibly get into. Um, and so I started looking around at like what were the possibilities. And there was an auditioning sort of process. We could audition to get in these schools in Chicago. And so I kind of saved up my money and got a plane like a ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where all come. yeah, yeah. So I went up there and auditioned for a few schools, and NYU was one of them. And Todd London, who used to run the, um, what's the what's the place on Forty Fourth Street that like takes care of writers? It's called um, uh, oh. New Dramatist. He used to run New Dramatist for a long time, but he was also he was also a a teacher at NYU at the time. He auditioned me. And he said probably the most, um, I don't know, for me it was just the right thing. You know, I went in an audition for him and I had no idea. I didn't think I would get into anything. Mm -hmm. And I think I did like, you know, six degrees of separation and I can't remember what the other one I did. Was. Which, like the Paul monologue or something? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is just hilarious. Anyway, but I was like, talking to him afterwards and I said so is your school any good I said because you know I've never I don't even know no. anything about it and uh, I thought just be bold you know why not ask and he said you know for some people it's the worst mistake that they'll ever make is move to New York the city just eats them alive and teaches them that that their dreams have you know were uh, just smoke and like mm -hmm. they should get out of there as quickly as possible and he said and for some people you know, because of the proximity to the actual work that's going on, it's like so great. It's all about you and like what you put into it. And that for me was made so much sense. And so I felt really fortunate that, um, that they offered me a spot and, you know, gave me enough, what is it called? Um, you know, financial loans, aid financial aid so that I could afford to go, to go. Yeah. I just realized, I think I meant Rick, I don't remember anybody's name in Six Degrees, but I remember doing a monologue about like the guy who like goes out on the night or something with like the guy who's stealing from. I don't remember who the names were. The but. guy that I was, this guy, he's like a straight guy who, yeah, yeah. or he's sort of straight, right. and then he has an experience with him, yes. and he's like, and I loved it, and yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. and it was awesome. Yeah, that's what I. Mean. I think <laughs> yeah. his name is Rick, and then Paul is the one that he has the experience. With. I forget the names, but anyway, just to yeah. clarify, but. So now we're at NYU. Right. Now we're at NYU. And like, what was your favorite class or like the one that you feel like you excelled in? And uh, did anything scare you in school? Yeah. So I was at Circle in the Square okay. initially, which seemed the most, they were like, it's everything. You know, it's, you can get whatever you want here. There's all different kinds. And that's right in the basement of Circle in the Square, right? Correct. Right. It was there and it was in the Nat Horn Theater, which was on 40, it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. It's kind of where... Um, sort of where the Signature's new space is, uh -huh. like in that area, there was a theater, and we kind of walked between 42nd Street and, and 50th, uh, 50th yeah, and we were down in the basement in that huge, beautiful three-quarter. Anyway, yeah, so that was 
that that's where I was. Um, um, what was I? Well, the thing I thought they were going to just turn me around and go home. I thought I was going to show up and everybody was going to be so much more prepared and so much more worldly, which they were a lot more worldly than I was, and well read and. Um, I don't know. I feel like, you know, it was kind of like I didn't know the lingo of, you know, I call it play, you know, still play practice for me, you know. And so even though we had some, some of my teachers at Oklahoma State were people of the world, you know, it was just a different community. It was like different how we thought about um, doing, doing shows. So I was worried about that. Um, I was not worried about the city at all. I love the city, even though I didn't have any money at all and kind of. Uh, I, I'm not even sure exactly how that all worked. Works that I, but you know, the truth is, is that though there were many classes and there were many teachers that I had, um, I worked a little bit with um, the experimental theater wing mm-hmm. um, after my second year. I had like I did two and a half years of the undergrad there, and in the last semester that I did, we worked with. Um, Kevin Kolke was the guy that kind of was running a class. We did a tu- we did this Brecht play, The Tutor, and we worked with him and Annie B. Parsons and Wendell Beavers and like some people from there. And I actually was kind of that kind of blew my mind a little bit, you know, the sort of freedom of like what they were doing and how he worked emotionally. And I just liked them uh, a lot. Um, but actually, the best class I had at NYU was an existentialism class because I I like took I took, um, I was also a philosophy, I was a philosophy minor while I was there just because I was so poorly read. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to take something that like has really good reading list that like forces me to learn how to read because I didn't know how to read. Mm -hmm. Like I did not know how to read a book. Like, I mean, I could read, I could read words obviously, but I couldn't, I had no stamina. Like I couldn't stay with the book and, um, so much of I had missed out on all the great books and all this kind of stuff. And um, somebody had given me this little book called The Rational Man, which is by this guy, William Barrett, who wrote kind of, he's sort of the father of existentialism in many ways about his sort of summation of it. And he talks about all the people like Kierkegaard and Sartre and all these people, Nietzsche, that that were um, sort of, in the realm of existentialism. This guy, Arthur Lothstein, taught this class called Existentialism. It was his best class I ever took. I can't believe that's even a thing that like exists. That's yeah. so cool. Mm-hmm. But his whole thing was like, get out there, live life, you know, be yeah. hard, you know, like, and it was kind of a, uh, it was therapeutic almost. Of course. So that was my best NYU class. I wish it would have been a theater class. A theater class. But, no, but I mean, that, I think that, that sometimes lends itself. I feel like a lot of the classes that I took in college are sort of informed the way that I like approach, right. I don't know, theater or things came from outside. Yeah. So I'm into that. But um, now let's fast forward. You graduate, and uh, you say in an interview that I read that when you first came to New York, you started at the very bottom. So who were you after you graduated? Did you showcase? Uh, how did you pound the pavement? Right. So mostly we were doing kind of our own stuff at here. Mm. Theater was a place that we would do things. Um, we would try, I had a couple of friends, we were trying to like put things together um, and then present them, you know, and nobody, you know, people would come or wouldn't. Yeah. Um, and they were things like, we did a show that was called Anus Moon Die, you know, Asshole of the World. That was, you know, I, I, mean, I, I kind of feel like it was about the Holocaust, <laughs> which was ridiculous because it was like a bunch of, you know, it was like, uh, I mean, in retrospect, you know, it was like five, like, white <laughs> blonde people anyway, anyway maybe it was exactly what it should have been um and then uh bob moss i had done uh man and superman uh the shaw play at uh, at nyu and uh it had gone really well and he wanted to do it at the hangar which was ithaca. in ithaca so uh i actually decided to go to europe for six months and just backpack around and mm-hmm. grow a beard and so I did that and was there. And somehow, when I was in Greece, like living on a beach, somehow a message got to me. Because this is like pre-all communications, it seems like. Um, somehow a message got to me that Bob was trying to get in touch with me. And I, 
I got in touch with him and he said, do you want to come back and like, do you want to do this show again? And I said, yeah. And so I came back and that was kind of my first professional show. Mm -hmm. We, there were a couple of friends of mine. I lived in an apartment on Broadway between Waverly and Astor Place with these four or sometimes five other people. It was like a, a loft that was actually pretty inexpensive. Um, certainly in the mid 90s and we made film we did a lot of films you know like little tiny you know 60 millimeter films they were all from the film school and like we had a uh, you may not even know what this is but we had a Steenbeck which is like the it's like the wheel reel to reel thing we had one of those in our apartment Um, so I was living I was uh, yeah I was living there and there was another actor there, these guys from Minnesota, and we had found a manager who was a real scumbag, this guy, Ian Scott, who was auditioning us for uh, commercials. And so he, 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 I mean, it was just, it was not good. He was embezzling money from people. I mean, it was awful. We found out about it later. Um, But, you know, who cares? We didn't care back then. It's like, you know, so I did a couple of, like, a Bubble Yum commercial. And then I'm sure Ian, like, took most of the money for it. Right, like, right. I have no idea. Like, that's how clueless I was about, like, what was going on. Um, but I did the show with uh, the show, uh, The Hanger. And then I had a kind of a relationship with them over the mm-hmm. next couple of years where I was literally making, like, $120 right. a week doing um, Macbeth in schools at eight o'clock in the morning all over upstate New York and Ohio. And like I did that and I did, you know, where we didn't even fight with like swords. We fought with dowel rods, Uh you know, it was like awesome. Yeah. The stuff that, you know, the hour long production. 8am for schools though. I mean, no matter what, sometimes it's just brutal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I think that's how you, when you're doing the Scottish play, right? I think it's how you pay your dues, but yeah. Do you have any advice that your current self would give you when you were first starting out? I know that's so hard. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing that I think you wonder, especially especially if you're in the theater a lot, which I was, and um, my little sojourns into television or film or whatever were so traumatic because it was so like not yeah enjoyable like day playing is the worst and you know so whenever or even being on an independent film is so awful it doesn't have anything to do it doesn't seem like with like what you have trained and studied to do so it's so awful and you think oh okay I'm just I'm gonna do theater is that enough and am I ever gonna be able to like I don't know you I think I think you worry like am I gonna make it you know am I gonna be successful and um, I would look back and be like, no, you are making it. Mm-hmm. You're making it, dude. That's what, that's what making it looks like. Okay. And even though you're doing construction or, you know, whatever hustle you're trying to do so that you can still go to auditions and still do everything, like, you are making it. You are, as long as you're keeping your nose in there, you're, you're making it. You're making it. And so I would just reassure. I would reassure. Because there, t- there were moments when I was like, oh... It gets tough, I mean, and, and even for myself, I mean, I have some, some very well-intentioned neighbors and, and relatives, too, who, you know, when you're not working, it comes into this sort of thing of, like, oh, really hope something happens for you. And it's, like, right. it's very difficult to sort of say, like, well, I had this audition, and they seem pretty interested, but, you know, that's kind of like a win, and they're a little bit like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's sort of like you do have to kind of give yourself those reassurances, but... Um, what is something that you won't walk into the audition room without? How do you sort of like arm yourself to walk in? Well, now it's about being prepared. Yeah. You know, I won't walk in if I don't. I mean, I say I won't. I mean, there's nothing. I'll do anything. Let's be honest. Um, no, I. Uh, I mean, these aren't like tactile things that I hold in my pockets that I go in with. But, you know, I've kind of gotten to the point now that. If I can't read um, a script, like I don't like dummy scripts. Mm-hmm. I don't like not the part. I don't like, um, and this is privilege, being able to, you know, I've just been in the business long enough that I, I feel okay saying no to like things that don't have that. Mm-hmm. I, I want to read a script. You know, I want to, 
I want to read a script. And then uh, because I want to know and I want the person that's doing it, I want them to know what we're getting into together. Right. I don't want it to feel like a magic trick that somehow I went in and like fell down in a strange way and they hired me. Right. Like I want to, I want it to be like consensus that like this is a good idea. This is a match. This is a fit. Like that's a place where I want to start from. And yeah. so, you know, as best I can, and this is something I would tell my younger self, you know, you have to figure out a way to be prepared. Like even though it's you don't have the job, you're not getting paid. There's only one day to prepare. You have to figure out a way to be prepared when you go in because it, 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 it's, it's sort of everything, you know, to be prepared. And I'm sort of notoriously a terrible auditioner. Are you? Yeah, awful. How so? I don't know. You know, I have a problem with fakery. Mm. Like, put the person over there and put the person over there and... Pretend you're holding a knife, like die, cry. Like I don't, I don't, I don't do well with the pretending part of acting. Um, And that's not to say that actually that I'm some sort of um, method person. Like I'm not. That's not my Mm -hmm. gig either. But you know, I I like to look at people and and talk to them and be able to kind of go wherever I'm supposed to go. And um, that's just not the setup. It's just not the setup of an audition. It's about being able, I feel like auditions are about sort of being able to access some part of your body. I mean, it's less so in theater, but that, that you're like trying to access something that you don't really understand yet. And mm-hmm. I find that to be sort of fakey. And I'm, I'm that way in rehearsals when I begin. You know, a lot of times I'm sure, and you could, if you talk to directors who've worked with me a lot, a lot of them go, just give them, give them a minute. Like, yeah. I know it looks bad, but it will, it will change and it will evolve and it will grow. And, you know, you just don't, you don't have the opportunity to do that in an audition. So I think I'm just not sort of naturally, um, lock, I'm just not settled, I think. You know. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> welcome to okay. ha- welcome to Houston Street. Sometimes, you know, I think for people they can use the adrenaline, the the fear, the kind of unnatural wonky situation of like an audition mm-hmm. or a performance, you know, that's like a one time only kind of thing that really boosts them and creates this like magical lightning yeah. striking kind of thing. But for me, um, I need to be relaxed. It's all about figuring out how to relax the whole, the whole thing. And if that means, you know, I know every bit of blocking that every single person does. I know exactly how the state, I know every, that's why I love the theater. I yeah. love it because I know, know all of it. And so I can feel ownership of it. And I can relax. And then I'm not worried about being in front of people. That right. doesn't even... That's, that's not a that's the good That's the good part. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Totally. Yeah. Well, now we can go to the fun part, okay. which is in the actual rehearsal room. Before we talk about At Home at the Zoo, I just wanted to sort of make you laugh. In college, my speech class, mm-hmm. we were given an assignment. We were given the first scene of... I guess we were just doing the zoo story. Uh, just the first scene and like the first like few pages sure and it was just a measure of like how to use your voice in fill space and for each class we we would start in a smaller room and then the room would grow and grow and grow and grow we would sort of just like do it like that yeah and the teacher I think advised us at the time to not read the play just to because it wasn't about like I don't know there was a whole there was a whole rigmarole around it. But for this purpose, it was literally just about like the usage of voice and, and how it carries and stuff. And so I had never read the full play. Right. So fast forward to last summer, I'm directing children at a camp. And uh, we were doing scenes about people kind of just like, you know, sitting around and, and waiting on benches. And I gave mm-hmm. two middle school children the first few pages from college. 
Because they were like, we don't want to do things that are babyish. And I was like, oh. I was like, I've got something for you. Oh, yeah. And I presented them with the same first few pages. And uh, I told them that they could look up the play if they wanted to. Because I couldn't, at a summer camp, I don't think I could require them to like read the play. So uh, one of them came in the next Monday. I think that was a Friday. And they came in on Monday and they were like, so we read the synopsis on Wikipedia. And they were like, are you a monster? And I was like, oh, no, sorry about that. And then the parents came to see Little Showcase and they actually thought that it was all really, really funny. So luckily that all paid off. But now for somebody who has read and performed in the full play, right. um, I wanted to just talk a little bit about... <laughs> wow. So I know, it's pretty wild. I love that though. I think... I watched that. They like, can handle it. Little kids. They could handle it. Sure. Um, I wanted to just talk about sweating the small stuff. Like I think it's something Word. you said in an yeah. interview, particularly in regards to Jerry. And I just wanted to read something that Stella Adler said in her book, which was, these plays aren't easy. Nobody knows the answers to them. A man like Albie takes away the scenery. There are two benches. On those two benches, he gives you the world. And so, mm-hmm. as a script you know, detective. How do you take what's on the page and make it real to you? You know, that play, that play specifically, you know, I think that I've read a lot of plays just out of necessity, just because this is my profession. And one of the things you notice about this play specifically is how big um, he thought and not only how how sort of capital B big picture he thought, but you know, you certainly you get his youth and his anger and his you know his um, sp- specific passion and kind of the verbose way in which he describes what it is to like not fit inside for Jerry to Mm -hmm. not fit inside of like the box that everybody's talking about and can't figure out how to get inside of that box you know he's he's a he's a he's the a gift that keeps on giving you know there are a few writers that you read them and you realize initially or at least I you hope um, or at least I do when I read it I say oh wow the density of like what he's written is um, so apparent. You can dig in this one as long as you want, and mm-hmm. you will continue to find deeper and deeper answers as to like why these people are the way they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes he is uh, he is um, he's tricky about the way he likes to hide the truths of what you know he's doing, but. But it's in there. You just look at his syntax, and I mean the the word he's chosen, each word, the way he's chosen them are so specific. Um, yeah, and you can just feel the closeness that he had to these people. And look, I met Albie one time, like I auditioned for him, and I think he was kind of mean to me, and um, and uh, it was very short. And Kurt, because I was awful, I'm sure. But, but, um, you know, I see a person that, um, you know, is just really sensitive and like is pained by humanity and loves humanity and loves humans. Like I, I like, for all the sort of um, terrible or mean things you hear about, like how he was kind of socially. Like I don't believe it. Yeah. Like I know, I know what a soft person he was, which probably made him like angry or whatever. And I love plays like that. I love plays that are about nobility and people that self-destruct. You know, in their attempts at like really asking kind of honest questions about mm-hmm. like who they are and stuff like that. I think it's just such a beautiful play. That was a delight to kind of um, pull apart. Yeah, over time. Yeah. I wonder, sort of, like, how did Lila Neugebauer help you, like, mine that? And Well, there's... N- I don't know that there is a smarter, more articulate human being than she is. When we spoke 
I was doing something. I can't remember what I was doing, but I was like out of town, and she had I'd gotten the play, and I had not ever read it. I had seen so many scenes of it, right? Um, of like move over, you know, move over, and I was like, oh, this is that play about the guy who terrorizes the other guy mm-hmm. in the park, and I was like, that makes sense, you know. Those are the kinds of parts that people like cast me in, and uh, but I thought, well, I'll read it. So I read it, and I thought, oh wait. That's not what this play is about at all. This is this is there's really a lot of things going on here. And when we spoke on the phone uh, about what the play was, and I talked to her about what, um, or asked her what her ideas about the play was, she said, and a really um, this articulate person said, she was like, "I have to tell you," she's like, "I have no idea what this play will be," and she said, "I think, you know." One of the things that interests me, because she knew my work, she's like, I have no idea what you're going to do. And, you know, maybe she was just conning me and sort of appealing to my sense of like, oh, wow. she. But I think there was like a thing of like she had a real openness to like what it was. Mm-hmm. And we always treated it that way. There was always an openness, a kind of um, it could be it could be, you know, as crazy as we might think. Because, you know, there's so many things about that play like. What is the zoo? What did he see at the zoo? What happened at the zoo? Then doesn't get answered. No. That you can answer. And I actually think that the update he did, it changed the play. Mm. I think it's a lot more about... Um, uh, I actually think the older version is the one when it's not coupled with is a lot more of a gay play. It's about... I think it's a lot more about like what it was like to be in New York at that time, to be gay... Whereas when he updated it, to me, it's like it's not from that period anymore. Uh-huh. Now, it's, now it's 2006. It's a very different time to yeah. be like um, gay and in New York in 2006 than it is in 1957. Right. And so there's that going on. It, and it, to me, it leans more on a kind of bigger, I mean not bigger, but like um, more existential uh, discussion mm-hmm. about like who am I and how do I how do I fit in here, yeah. which I think is in the in the spirit of like what it was before. But I think they're different plays actually. I mean that was my sort of interpretation. And you know Lila's just she's just really smart and tactical about like how she goes about you know. I'm a big fan, and I and I and I've watched all the interviews that she had given about the play, and I found her fascinating and. Um, and I really liked the Waverly Gallery that she oh, yeah. directed this yeah. past season. But um, I also wanted to just jump back to him for a second because you said that you wanted to meet him again. Yeah. And I was wondering, what would you say having done the play? I just I just tell him about how I think I don't know that I was in like an all be person. You know that that's how I would have ever I would never describe myself as that. Like I wasn't particularly like not not that I'm not a fan. I mean I am, yeah. but it's not like. He's not necessarily what I was drawn to, but uh, yeah, I would I would tell him what a what a special play I think he wrote. Like I think it's I just would like it would just be nice to just tell him yeah. like how much how how much how this play like affected me and, and moved me as a person and and changed me and you know made me. Um, it just I was just. It's, it was such a gift to sort of be able to work on it. And I'm sure he would have hated my production. Like, I, I just have this, like, little person in my ear that's like, I'm sure Albie would have thought you are awful. Well, you know, who knows? Because he he's notoriously has said lots of things. You know, so you just think that, like, he probably wouldn't like me. It's probably better that it worked out the way it worked out. Right, right. Um, so I can dream that it would have been a love affair. But I really think that, like... Um, Regardless of how he felt about me, it would have been my pleasure to to tell him yeah. what a um, what a rarity he created, and how important it is to to theater that like he wrote that play. Yeah, that we have that play to mm-hmm. do. There is a reason that every person you meet almost has done some version of that play. Including middle schoolers. Including middle schoolers. I can't. <laughs> Let's jump to Sam Shepard. Um, having done both Buried Child and True West, is mm-hmm. there anything else I'm missing? I did the late Henry Moss, like, I don't know, 
at what point? At, at uh, the Contemporary American Theater Festival. Oh. I was running the, um, th- that route. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was just wondering, what appeals to you about him as a writer? You know, Sam is, he's, he's a lot of fun. He's also more so than Albie. I think he's, he's a really mo- emotional, like a lot of his stuff to me doesn't actually make that much sense. Mm-hmm. Like actual, factual, like it doesn't actually make any sense to me. But it makes a lot of emotional sense. Like it makes, like you can really see the kind of the id of yeah. a human being, like just feeling a certain way in the world mm-hmm. and just kind of implementing that and damn all the truths about like the way the world works. Totally. Like they just do whatever feels right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I worked with Sam a couple of times um, on movies and then... Uh, he was around when we were working on Barry Child um, and getting to know him. And it made a lot of sense to me. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that, I don't know, you know, I, I, he's, a, he's a bit of a, um, or was a bit of a, uh, um, uh, a mystery, you know, as a human. Like, I'm not sure exactly what was always going on mm-hmm. um, with him. But I know he loved actors. And I know he loved the theater and thought it was really important. And uh, I remember being surprised that he liked to talk about, like, what was going on in the theater. Mm. I remember thinking, he's probably a curmudgeon, you know, he thinks theater's stupid. Right, right. And he just does it because, you know, whatever. And he's not like that at all. And I can remember at one point when I was playing Tilden, I said to him, because Tilden is... Like who knows what's going on? Like he's like his brain is fried, so it's hard to it's hard to imagine like what is happening. And he was in rehearsal, and I went up to him and just kind of off the cuff said to him, I was like, Sam, you're not like you're not like in your mind holding on like you know what you're not telling me something, and you just want to see me like mm-hmm. flail around yes, and yeah. try and figure out like you don't know something that I know. And he literally did not say anything. He just kind of stared at me like nothing, which is not totally atypical for him. But what was funny was the next day he pulled me aside and he said, hey, I didn't want you to think that I was like ignoring you. He's like, I just, you know, he just kind of got to a place where he just his brain just kind of was electrocuted it just was too much and he's like never been able he's just burned out you know he just can't never came back Hmm. and I don't know that that changed anything but I do think that like he he he, I don't think he knew a lot of times thinking about maybe what how to answer you right whereas I think Albie could write a treatise Right. On like what exactly was going on in every mm-hmm. moment. Like I think if you sat down with him, he would explain to you, yes, this happened and this happened and this happened in his life, and that's why he's there. And I think Sam would kind of be like, I'm not totally sure. Mm. I just kind of wrote this in a fever dream. Yeah. And I think his ability to kind of write in a fever dream um, and be funny is what transcends and scary. Yeah. You know, he like has access to all that. Scary stuff. is a very real thing with him, and I. I wonder sort of like for you when you're discovering the physicality of a character, is that something like you come home and you're like figuring out, you're in the room, rehearsal room and you're doing that, both? You know, I I feel like that you get a you get a sense of like how people stand and move in the world, like what they're it's not something I do consciously. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, if you work on a part, maybe this happens to you. If you work on a part that the person is sort of slovenly and kind of, I don't know, they don't really take care of themselves and maybe they're a little schlumpy or something like that. Like, it's not uncommon for me to like in life, not because I'm trying to, but I like gain a little weight. I like sit a little hunched. You know, those kinds of things make all the difference about how people speak. You know, the, the curvature of your spine, like the way you are, I feel like it's embedded in the syntax of the words that a good writer has written. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's not something that consciously I think, oh, well, this person is like um, a monkey in the zoo. You know, I don't think like that. 
per se. Sure. But I do think that it is possible to um, reorient your DNA to a point where you do not look the same depending on what it is that you're doing okay. and that people don't look the same based on just their posture. You know, Jerry is a very different beast than um, Tilden. You know, Jerry is a kind of, he's like an S. You know, he's like this kind of weird crossed, you know, kind of, like that's just how he always felt to me. And Tilden is a kind of like, He's like a post with like his head is hanging down off that's of exactly it. Exactly. Describe like how I saw like your physicality. Yeah, and I think that that's to me that's who they are. That's how they see the world. You know, mm-hmm. your your physicality is it it changes like how you interpret people. You know, because how they react to you based on what you're giving them. You know, it makes all the difference. And yeah. so I I think physicality is is enormously important. But I I don't. It's nothing mathematical for me. It's much more about, like, feel. It's sort of surprising to me, too. Sometimes I don't even... I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm working on something and I'm preparing and I go away for a couple of days and I, like... You know, even if I'm just preparing for an audition, I have a long amount of time or, like, a callback or something. I feel like I go away and I'm, like, marinating in something and then I go to do it and my body kind of does something that I don't even... It's not, Nothing's premeditated. It just kind of happens. And that's the kind of magic that I guess you can't really talk about. Yeah, it's hard to explain. Yeah. But I feel like when you get things in your bones, it just does. And likewise, there are scripts that I read, and this is one of the reasons that I always try and read the The script, is there are good plays that have been written, and there are parts that just absolutely do not speak to any part of me. I have no concept of, like, what this person looks like in Mm -hmm. the world. You know, I just don't, I don't know. Like, I can't imagine... Their scenario, I can't imagine those words coming out of my body. You know, and you've you've gotten. You're okay with sort of like saying like you know maybe this isn't for me. It's not oh, like yeah. I feel like I look at that sometimes. It's like you're not trying hard enough, James. Like make sure you really like crack this. I think it's a really it's a it's a it's a hard one, and you wonder you know like as I've as my career has um, as I've become more successful over the years and have gotten the ability to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, I do wonder at times, like, am I not pushing myself? Am I not taking things because they're not comfortable for me? Uh huh. Um, because you know the business wants to cast you as what you just did, right? If it was good, and so I I think that's a really valid question. Yeah. Um, but I also think that there are times when it's just, you know, it's just not it's just not for you. Trust your gut. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these plays, you know, we enter the darkness. Yeah. And I'm wondering just sort of like how do you let go at the end of the night? Have you gotten good at sort of like mm-hmm. you have? Yeah. No, it doesn't affect me. I mean, to say it doesn't affect me, it does affect me. Of course, you know, I can remember even when I was doing Barry Child, I, my my uh, my kids were little. And I can remember being like, oh, this is a baby that I'm holding that is dead. Like, there are moments when you carry that kind of stuff with you. And I do think that the characters, they infiltrate you. You know, they speak to you. You think about them. So you think their thoughts, you, um, they're in the world. But I am sort of a, um, I'm a pretty upbeat person in terms of when I'm working. I like to laugh and I like to dig in deep. Like, that's enjoyable to me. Like, the pain sometimes of mm-hmm. even not knowing your lines and, like, struggling and, you know, in those first days of holding scripts and, you know, being embarrassed. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I revel in those moments. I, I love being in a room with people that are trying to solve something. And so I like, I like a, a good place. So I don't, I don't. I don't, that's not my way is to walk around and kind of like, if I'm doing a dark character, be that dark character all the time. That's not fun for me. And also, I find that if I focus on it too much, Mm. you know, it's like pain. You know, if you focus on the pain too much, it's like spreads and is more painful. This, this is a situation where if I, if I'm like, I gotta be sad, I gotta be sad, I gotta be sad, I gotta be sad, I'm so sad, look how sad I am, I'm so sad, that if I squeeze it too hard, then I can't be sad. Sometimes for me, being sad is like, 
I'm having a great time working on this and like, oh, and somehow the defenses go down and I'm able to kind of access sadness in a way just because if just because it feels good to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. It feels good to be able to kind of indulge myself in this moment. And so I'm always trying to cultivate like a good time. But I also understand people that that don't. You know, I work with Mike Shannon sometimes and, you know, he he's. He, he, he gets, it really affects him, you know, like what's going on. And I think it's 100% valid, like what he is going through. I mean, which is proved in the, uh, the pudding when he does it. But, uh, you know, he has to, when we work together, he has to put up with me. And I'm in generally pretty good mood. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm breaking the rules slightly just because I do usually focus on theater. Yeah. We did talk about this a little earlier. And I'm just wondering, you know, since the stage I read is like your favorite place, how does the prep differ from walking into a rehearsal room and having that luxury, and then sometimes the feeling of kind of uh, letting it go. How do you free yourself on set? Well, I mean, I think that's something you continue to, to work on. Discover. Um, it it's easier because I'm more comfortable because it doesn't it doesn't frighten me in quite the same way. I don't feel the pressure in quite the same way. I feel like I have the um, the confidence of the people that have hired me in me that they believe and that is extremely helpful mm -hmm. but look there's no substitute for breaking down a script and rehearsing with the people that you're doing it there is no replacement for that there are two different kinds of acting there is acting which is what happens a lot in film and television, which is trying to you know, sort of catch lightning in a bottle. There are a lot of different ways that people do that. You know, There are the ones where they rehearse a lot and people get really good at what they're doing and they've worked with this project for a really long time and they go in and they're able to relax and they're able to do these kind of amazing things. But most of the time what it is, is people kind of aren't sure what's gonna happen. They prepare just enough, but they've kept all the juice inside the lemon and then they like go out and they just, something happens, and it just all turns on. I don't find that to be artisanship. I, that's not the kind for me, anyway. Like, it is a particular kind of acting, which I think is great, and there are people that can really, really do it, and I think at times, even I can do it as well, but the one I really enjoy is the one that is much more about, uh, look, I have a relationship to the audience, which is, yeah, I've had this play for a month and a half. Mm. I do it every day, tw sometimes twice. I know every line, just like they just falls out of my mouth. I can do it whenever I want. I pause. If I act like I don't know what I'm going to say next, I'm lying. That, and yet, what I'm trying to do is make you think and make me think that somehow... This is all spontaneous. And that, there is an art to being able to do that. And uh, so the, the differences with film or television, depending on how much time you have, depending on how long you've had the script, you know, it, it, it varies like how prepared you are. When you do a TV show and you do 50 hours of a TV show and you play the same character all these 50 hours, you know, the good thing about it is it's like 10 hours, maybe 20 hours in, you're pretty familiar with who they are and what they do. And so the lines they give you are kind of irrelevant. You know all those things. And so that's the luxury of television to me is that over time you've built in all the work that you need to do in terms of the characters so that they're just kind of moving through life. Mm. And so that's its own thing. Uh, you know, film, day playing, these are hard. You get two shots, you know, you have 10 minutes or uh, sometimes two lines to be some, be a real person. That's a magic trick, you know, and um, so to me, it's why the theater is always the best because it's always the same. There will always be a process where we learn who is this person. We study it from you know a 360 degree globe around that person and their situation. 
as best we can. And then we perform in this kind of ritual way, these same lines to one another, but we continue to be in the moment with them. And that is that that is that is what I'm reaching for, mm-hmm. is to be that person, you know, that is doing that. That's the kind of acting that like makes me feel good. I most of the time in theater, I mean in television and film, feel a little bit like that was good, that was fun, mm. you know. That, there's something missing, but it was it was it was good. Yeah, yeah. I don't and I don't know how to, you know, depending on how big the part is. I mean, it changes, you know. But it's, of course, and it's not bad. I I I love being in. I love doing that too. I do it a lot. Yeah. Well, we're at the last two. Okay. And I'm just wondering, are there any roles that you're still dying to play? Hmm. Not really. I mean, I don't really think about it like that. I'm always kind of, I feel, I feel like maybe this is a vestige of my, just how poorly read I am. Um, but I always am kind of like, oh, this is a good play when I read it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there are some things I would like to do. You know, I, I, I used to do a lot of like Shakespeare and things like that, and I've kind of started to to have a um, a, a want to like do. I'd love to do Shakespeare in the Park, yeah. um, but you know that's a pretty hard one to break into, um, and have something to do. You know, not just carry a spear. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, not really. I mean, there are, there are people I like to work with, and there. Are, um, there, but in terms of parts, you know, I don't know until I get in there. Yeah. You know, I, I think if you'd have asked me before I did, um, any of the roles that I've, that I love, the ones that I've done, I, I don't know that I would have said, this is a, my dream role. Yeah. I mean, Jerry wasn't, mm-hmm. but in retrospect, no, it's... dream role. Yeah, yeah. So. I got it. Well, the finale is, um. Everyone answers this question, so you're not oh, alone. But right. we end with a love note from you to the theater. Oh, wow. Uh, what keeps you coming back and why it continues to ignite your soul? Well, I mean, I feel like I've sort of been, I've been skating around this uh, the entire time that we've been talking. Um, I think that the theater is the perfect um, organ or organization to accept sort of all facets of our humanity. It is open to whatever is going on in the world, no matter how small or how big or political or uh, whatever. So when we do it, we feel like we're a part of the world. And as a existentialist philosophy person, you know, I do believe that one of the most important parts, the reason I studied philosophy was because I do think that people are hungering for how to feel at home in the world. And I think that theater is an uh, is a way of uh, addressing that. I think that it it not only for the audience it addresses it by showing us ourselves, but even as um, actors within it and directors and writers, we have the opportunity to climb inside of the people around us and learn about them and have a different perspective that's not so navel-gazing. So simultaneously, it is uh, important, but all of that is sort of held up in the, sort of in the the hands of, uh, it's, it's a really joyous, it's a joyous thing to make theater. It's a, it, it feels good to, um, 
to make a show mm. to like do tell a story like it's a it's a privilege and it and to be able and in the theater everybody is accountable that is working on it the stage managers and the, and everybody yeah. that's in the room they're all accountable and i just the ethos of that to me is it's perfect it's like I could not ask for a better sort of system to be a part of. And I don't know that I've ever been in a system other than that, you know, that that expresses those same and addresses those same um, aspects of being alive. Wow. Yeah, I love it. I mean... Mic drop. That's a perfect... That's a perfect answer. <laughs> Well, Paul, thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, This has been awesome. And uh, talk to you later. All right, man. Bye. Bye.